Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we're joined by Kevin Hirth, director of Kevin Hirth Company and assistant professor at the University of Colorado Denver College of Architecture and Planning. Upon graduation from Harvard's Graduate School of Design, Kevin was granted the singular honor of receiving both the Harvard Faculty Design Award and the AIA Henry Adams Medal. In 2017, he was awarded the League Prize by the Architectural League of New York. On today's site visit, we're going to discuss our recent tour of downtown Denver. Some highlights of the tour included Philip Johnson's Wells Fargo Center and Roche Dinkaloo's Denver Performing Arts Complex. These buildings, which were an extension of a larger master plan initiative led by Pay Cobb Freedom Partners, play an important role in contextualizing the city within the dramatic landscape of Colorado. Completed in 1983, the Wells Fargo Center is currently the third tallest tower in Denver and among several of Johnson's famous towers located throughout the U.S. The Denver Performing Arts Complex, which was completed in 1979, is a massive performing arts center with 10 performance spaces and home to a handful of Colorado's music and theater companies. These buildings, along with the architectural character of the city, have inspired much of Kevin's work, his interest in history, urbanism, representation, and materiality. We began by asking Kevin to describe the buildings we saw on our tour and why he chose them for today's episode. I tried to take you guys to two places that I think are really linked conceptually within the city of Denver, uh, but have a lot of differences between them that I think talk about this place, but also the kind of architecture scene at the time they were built. Uh, so we visited first uh, Philip Johnson's Wells Fargo Center, uh, which was built in 1983. Um, it's uh, sort of right in the middle of downtown. It's the second tallest building in the city. Uh, it's colloquially colloquially referred to as the cash register building, right? Uh, which is, it's, it's sort of taken over any other characterization of it um, because of its sort of distinctive top. Um, and then from there, we walked uh, through downtown to the Denver Performing Arts Center, which was built by uh, another Pritzker Prize winner, Kevin Roche, and his firm Roche Dinkaloo, uh, roughly around the same time, a little bit beforehand. Uh, I thought that these were pretty interesting places to visit because uh, they both have a sort of monumental street level vaulted interiorized spaces um, that were built basically to serve uh, the office worker of the 1980s uh, around Denver, but never really took off in the way that I think they were originally intended to be. Uh, so the Performing Arts Center um, is basically... Uh, a large parking garage with a theater in the back. <laughs> uh, and the Wells Fargo Center is a, a pretty tall tower uh, with a series of linked kind of atrium elements uh, that, that suffuse the street level. Uh, and I think that both of them are, are, are really defined uh, by the kind of iconic uh, uh, front of them. Um, in the case of the Wells Fargo Center, it's the sort of 
top of the building that you see all the way out at the airport coming into the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the case of the Performing Arts Center, the sort of uh, exploding vault thing that happens at the back, Mm -hmm. (laughs) actually uh, facing away from the city. Um, But actually, I think the the sort of inhabitation of those two spaces, uh, these two kind of vaulted interior atriums, they're both empty all the time. <laughs> uh, they're sort of a vacuum. Um, and I think when you visit them, you, you're, it strikes you that, uh, that, or it strikes me, I guess, that Denver is a place um, of largeness uh, that's almost inescapable. Um, so when you approach the city, it's really dwarfed by the mountains behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, the monumentality of the landscape is very pervasive, not just in the city, but kind of within the collective memory of everyone who drives around the state. Um, so when you're in the city and you are confronted with these rather large interior public spaces, uh, they have a funny relationship, I think, to the way we view Colorado and Denver mm. in themselves because yeah. they're very much trying to kind of control the interior environment and create this sort of monumental experience but ultimately it kind of I think falls short of what we see as public space mm. in the city. Yeah, it's it's funny kind of in two ways. One is like it, there's this desire to kind of condition uh particularly in the in the in the first building in the Wells Fargo Center. But um, I was it was pleasant I was pleasantly surprised by the climate here in Denver, which is <laughs> kind of extraordinary. And um, I had always imagined it as a kind of snow filled landscape at times and my understanding though is that the sun is kind of always shining here and you actually don't need this conditioned public space. Um, right. And so both complexes are I am pay master plans, right? From this kind of uh, period of, um, as you said, like this, these larger 80s developments that were about serving a, a mm-hmm. new type of corporate labor. Um, one thing that's really striking in my mind about the Wells Fargo is that it's known for this, uh, it's iconography, as you were mentioning, mm-hmm. the, the cash register building. But that same form is actually spectacularly played out in the public space. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's something that is not noted about that building very often because it's just not quite as visible. But, yeah. Uh, that kind of uh, doubled half vault uh, is multiplied many times at the ground level uh, and sort of extruded horizontally as opposed to kind of sitting on top of a vertical extrusion. So um, I think it it it's Philip Johnson that is at his best from that time period, really, because there's a sort of play of surface against surface uh, and wrapping things almost like it's wallpaper. Yeah, uh, the tower itself has uh, this window system that uh, wraps around the corners and <laughs> is cropped by the top of the curve of the mm-hmm. building. Yeah, and then in turn, the the atrium itself uh, sort of slams into uh, a early modern tower across the street, and is sort of cropped by the form of that building itself. 
So you get this registration of plasticity, I think, of both the surface of the tower and the form of the atrium. Oh, that's really interesting because, like, yeah, on approach, the building has this kind of, like, brown, beige, maybe a little bit of a red luster, which, like, speaks to maybe, like, a certain kind of tint or chroma that seems to be part of, like, the Denver-built and literal landscape. It is. Um, But then when you approach it, you go into one of these first big vaults and you're confronted with a, a kind of formalized facade that seems to be playing on some kind of Italian Renaissance trope in terms of the elevation. So there's little infill panels of marble. um, And all that formality comes through in a way when you're approaching the building from far away, it reads like a generic kind of corporate skin. But when you get close, you kind of start to appreciate that level of Mm -hmm. detail. And then there's that extraordinary moment where you get into the elevator bank lobby and it gets really formal all of a sudden. Mm Yeah, I think there's a kind of a Beverly Hillbilly sensibility to it. Uh, it's fancy. Right, right, right. Air quotes uh, fancy. <laughs> the infill panels are marble, but then the tower itself right. is this sort of rougher material. I think the really, the, my favorite moment in that building is where the tower meets the sidewalk um, mm-hmm. because the windows are then cropped by the hill that the building sits mm. on. Uh, and it's almost perfect. There's like a little four-inch curb that you would never really notice unless you're an architect that sits at the bottom of the building where the where the kind of facade meets yeah. the sidewalk. But otherwise, it's essentially just uh, concrete poured by the city slamming into this, uh, like, fancy marble facade. <laughs> right. I, yeah, that's a good point to note. Also, just that um, designing a tower for most architects, you're really you're, you're designing a, a top, a middle, and a base, right? Sure, and the absolutely. middle just kind of continues on for floors and floors. But what where you really have a, opportunity for expression, opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of make an urban statement, it's happening at the top. And so the, that building is a great example of the kind of um, arched top, which is iconic. You see it from miles away. And then at the base, you can see um, Philip Johnson having a little bit of fun. You know, yeah, like, yeah. there's a little bit of humor um, in the way that it's hitting the ground. Yeah. But then it's also really um, kind of bringing the tower slamming into the sidewalk almost and then um, kind of making it more inhabitable by encasing it in this atrium so sure. that it is really inviting to the public. There is something at a more human scale. It's maybe very daunting to walk into a, um, a tower, which is just a kind of repeated floor that hits the ground. Um, but that atrium kind of softens the blow. Mm-hmm. It does make it feel yeah. um, in a way more Italian because there are so many kind of platforms and levels on that. You could just kind of imagine the references that he was thinking about. You have to imagine he was um, at least part of in a part of his head thinking about um, the Seagram building, which he was sort of partially involved in, mm-hmm. uh, that Mies van der Rohe um, designed uh, 15, 20 years earlier, uh, where in that case, the, it's all about the plinth, sort of meeting the sidewalk and creating this sort of um, very formal, uh, almost temple-like entry sequence into the building. Yeah. Uh, and the tower is lifted up off of the plinth so that you're sort of traveling under it. Yeah. Johnson is doing the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. He's slamming the building down. That's a, that's a really great point because it also is absorbing an existing mm-hmm. modernist building, mm-hmm. you know, something that carries on the tradition of the 
uh, language of the Seagram. Mm-hmm. So, if, um, you know, we're thinking when we speak of that example, we're talking about like a, a skyscraper with a lot of um, formality of express steel, very modern, minimal details. So it's interesting how when he stitches everything together with these cash register vaults at the ground level, he absorbs an existing building and actually undermines its monumentality by allowing it to feel like a kind of urban existing figure that's just stitched into the complex. So it's actually like pulled into the atrium and half of the lobby is carved out and kind of given back to the larger public space. Um, and it's really interesting how it how he kind of uses maybe like a, a more like new urbanist approach, yeah, I guess. Like pre-new urbanist. Yeah, yeah. Proto. <laughs> proto, proto-new urbanist. Yeah, it's because it's some kind of attempt at least to kind of soften the blow of this uh, of sure. monument towers. Yeah, and I think um, it, this exact same condition plays out at the Denver um, Performing Arts Center, where you have this sort of totalizing um, public space that consolidates a bunch of unlike parts into one sort of composition, but in a very anachronistic way. Um, and the urban connection there is so different, because in the urban connection in the um, Philip Johnson Tower, it's going from one block lobby up you go up a few levels you cross the street on a sky bridge and then emerge into another lobby yeah, you descend into this like thing yeah. exactly yeah. and then in the performing arts center it's creating this kind of artificial urban corridor which is exterior where one side you entered near a parking garage so it's very urban and the other side you kind of exit out into kind of flat landscape with an amazing view of the mountains yeah yeah and i think that that's the sort of wonderful bizarre uh badness of the performing arts <laughs> in a way is that from uh from 14th street which is the main one of the main streets in denver uh and the, definitely the main entry for yeah. the performing arts center you really only see the the old uh, historic building kind of on its side axis uh and then the gigantic parking garage that was really sited in front of everything else and i think roche dinkaloo um intended to kind of front load things that weren't going to be useful so mm-hmm. that you had to walk through their big public space to get to the theater. But the, you know, I think we all know that's sort of a weird thing to do. <laughs> and the end result is that the, the building has um, a back for a front. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, there was an existing theater building, kind of a, a handsome, once again, beigey <laughs> brick, um, which is the, now the, the Well Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see that building in its side elevation, and then you turn and you come to this street that we've mm-hmm. been describing, this kind of open air street, mm-hmm. um, which actually jogs to deny the view beyond, which mm-hmm. is later disclosed as the, the mountains. So on your left, you have the th- existing theater um, there's a second theater by Roche Dinklu that's a little bit further down, mm-hmm. again on the left. So they've they just basically meet the elevation of the existing to create a kind of street edge. And on the right side is where things get really interesting because there is a parking garage with a very thin veneer mm-hmm. of a little shopping at the base, and then more or less just a kind of tectonic expression of of thinness and a higher finish level than you would expect on a parking garage to kind of complete sure. the street. Yeah. Um, and the main kind of uh, stair that takes that connects the parking garage to that vaulted space is actually very much a viewing platform of the historic mm-hmm. building as well as the kind of public space within that. It's almost like a 
Kevin Roche does Scarpa on a severe budget or something <laughs> like Casa de Vecchio in Denver. <laughs> You're kind of lofted above all of these different moments, looking down at his own sort of fussy architecture that he's mm-hmm. putting into it. And I think in a funny way, um, there's something generous about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels yeah. very Parisian or something. Yeah. Right? You're sort of above the crowds looking down. Yeah. I think things like that. Yeah. For the first time we looked at a parking garage and we thought, Hey, let's go in there. <laughs> let's, yeah. you know, let's go up yeah. those stairs. It looks like you'd have an amazing view and you did. You had a, again, an amazing view down into this kind of urban corridor. Um, but then actually we walked out onto the top level of the parking deck itself. And again, you have a spectacular view of mountains, um, which kind of surround Denver. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was also a parking deck that didn't, maybe scream I am a parking deck you could almost (laughs) because there were so many stairs and they were the same types of stairs and handrails that would go into any other kind of public building it seemed like actually uh, an inviting parking garage if I if I could call it that I mean we we lingered there longer than anywhere else yeah we really (laughs) maybe longer than the interior what's tragic about it all is that um, the parking garage and the vaulted space are both going to be demolished Uh, the demo has actually already started I tried to take you to another part of it but it's already sort of closed off so some of the most valuable pieces of that puzzle Hmm are being taken apart. And I think um, my critique is that they didn't find, they didn't challenge, they didn't find an architect who could challenge what's there Mm -hmm. and sort of glean and improve what they have. Instead, they're sort of hitting reset, um, which to me is a a missed opportunity. Yeah, I I think that that's a link here that I want to maybe um, point out or talk about is that in a lot of ways, we're talking about um, a couple of typologies or spaces that are maybe uh, under threat mm-hmm. right now in terms of development. So mm-hmm. when we were in the Philip Johnson um, lobby, mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't help but think of his lobby in New York, right, mm-hmm. which is kind of threatened by new development. And also thinking about Roche, this is the this is one of many Roche projects, which is about a really unique relationship between uh, the building and parking. So I think Union Carbide would be an example of mm-hmm. one, but also thinking about one that was demolished is the is the Coliseum in New Haven. The idea that which was uh, a large building that was a, a kind of um, hockey arena, but it served other functions, and there was a garage lifted above. So the idea was that you would drive in and circulate right into your seats and. That building was was demolished, and now we're facing the kind of second one where there's a lot of innovation uh, in this theater because it, it does create a generous public space while also solving a fundamental problem that most of the theater patrons would be driving in. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. and I think that's the main critique of that building in general is that it doesn't work with the street in yeah. a very friendly manner. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think that we're we're breezing past the concept of preserving things that have that sensibility uh, when I actually think there's an opportunity to say, okay, we're not, our relationship with the car has changed dramatically, uh, but how can we find these spaces and use them in a way that actually takes advantage of the glut of parking and vehicular circulation mm-hmm. and things like that where you could do something. I don't know, there's probably a fun studio there. (laughs) (laughs) 
We did actually even make it into the actual Performing Arts Center. So we, we've talked a lot about the parking garage, but we don't also want to overlook the building there. Um, so we did walk around, and interestingly enough, it's another... So Performing Arts Center, of course, would always need a really large, grand lobby. Lots of people coming in at, at specific times. So there's another kind of urban interior almost there. Um, another glass roof, glass curtain wall that curves around. I mean, there are many kind of similarities to... Uh, Roche Dinkaloo's other work too mm-hmm. that we were noting as we walk around circular concrete columns like curving glass wall all, um, all the tropes yeah weird <laughs> um, stainless steel your 80s checklist yes weird <laughs> stainless steel um, interesting kind of chandeliers hanging um, little niches where you kind of slip in I always love in oh, his yeah. theaters the way you enter the theater, the, the way you transition from the lobby into the theater itself, it's always through a kind of slippage um, so that the spaces can be very adjacent but feel there's like a kind of second you get mm-hmm. away from the crowd before you um, go find your seat. This thing, I mean, <laughs> yeah, this thing is a tour de force in stitching. <laughs> like, so many, like, uh, there's like an obvious intervention where a stair has been added. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly a building that's either struggling to adapt to new uses and new pressures or, you know, um, uh, it just currently isn't, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to mesh with how it should be operating as a theater. So we found this, uh, this like at the lobby kind of, um, has a tail that extends all the way around the body of the theater. And so we, we, we went all the way around looking at this like gorgeous views. And then we got to this really processional stare and you get to the very top and there's just boxes everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something, uh, it's, there's something duplicitous about it. Like it's not, but I, I don't know that it's changed in use very much. I think it's always been a little bit weird mm-hmm. um, where you have this corridor that kind of ends nowhere and yeah. always. And in order to get to the grand ballroom that's on the upper level, yeah. you have to go through the sort of back service area to go up the elevator. But I think these things were done intentionally because Mm -hmm. they intended for the audience in the theater or the visitors to the ballroom to be using different means Mm -hmm. of uh, circulation. So the big sort of escalators that weren't functioning when we were there. So when you have these kind of other pieces of architecture to try to serve that use it just doesn't it's very funny (laughs) so denver is a is a growing kind of booming area and Mm -hmm. you're part of that movement as a kind of transplant here into denver and so you've Mm -hmm. discovered this place and it's definitely really informed your work so i kind of want to pivot back to a point you were making earlier about the kind of shared monumentality between these spaces uh, and also the landscape in general. And maybe we could just start kind of expanding on what this means to you as a designer. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I did move here about five years ago. Um, I had actually not really visited Colorado all that much before coming here. Uh, my wife is uh, uh, kind of a half Colorado native. Her family has a house up in Evergreen, which is sort of a little tiny community not far from Denver up in the mountains. Um, so when we moved here, it really, I knew I wanted to kind of, um, start to develop a practice around the place here, um, and kind of start that fresh. Uh, and I think that meant really learning what this place is very quickly. Um, but also learning what it is through the work as it was kind of developed. 
Um, so I had the opportunity to do a couple of projects early on up in the mountains, not down here in Denver. Um, but simultaneously, I was uh, working for Paul Anderson. Um, he kind of gave me a home uh, to get myself settled here, which was really nice. I know you guys are <laughs> going with a, another tour with him later. So Stay <laughs> tuned, <fun>. listener. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think uh, just visiting it, um, and you guys have probably gotten some sense of this already, the landscape completely overwhelms anything that you ever can do in it. Um, <laughs> it dwarfs uh, architecture, infrastructure, um, to the point where you have to kind of decide whether you're going to hide inside of it or uh, try to be sort of oppositional to that. Um, and I think for me, the path has been to try to kind of counter monumentality with other kinds of monumentality. Um, so that's um, mainly manifested itself in trying to kind of deal with form and tectonics uh, in a very um, cohabitant way, I guess, like understanding primary forms and volumes is something that can sit in this gigantic kind of place mm -hmm. and um, neither hide nor overwhelm, but sort of counterbalance what you see. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think in your work, like monumentality, there, there's several forms in which it's triggered. Like one would be um, the kind of... Um, primitiveness right. of some of the shapes, right? Like mm -hmm. a very clear, legible figures, you mm -hmm. know? But the other is something that you just touched on, which I find really fascinating, is the notion of materiality mm -hmm. as a way to give scale. And in particular, I would think about the um, the house for uh, your mother? Mother-in-law house. Mother-in-law house, <laughs> which is, you know, reads like a kind of silo that um, has a kind of a, a more square profile at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And so there's a kind of revealed profile where you can really see the tectonic of the brick, which also would be connected then with your um, monument to direct democracy. Sure. Uh, could you talk a little bit about those projects? And like, I mean, what, uh, I'm also fascinated on like what's initializing them, you know, like are yeah. you kind of creating this context, you've created this context for yourself and I'm curious about it in all facets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are the two more recent projects in Colorado that I've been working on. Um, and both of them have taken on this uh, minor obsession with using an articulation of the material that's uh, that's constructing it as opposed to uh, kind of relying purely on the primary form or the primacy of the form. Yeah. Um, so the monument uh, project, was that one was completely unsolicited as sort of a research project to try to think about this issue of monumentality. Um, it's actually not a large project by any means um, and was intended to be sited in a park uh, here in Denver. We're actually just scrolling through your website, and I love that uh, this this notion of that scale because it's not disclosed until you give us a section drawing at the very end. Right. And that thing is much smaller than it's I ever not quite large. Yeah. 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 So the which, which is interesting because <laughs> it's a paper project, right? right? So there's a kind of, you know, you could have gone – Boulet, you know, and, right. and really kind of, and when we say that, we're referencing like these kind of large monumental um, projects from another kind of paper architecture area, excuse me, era in the in the uh, French Enlightenment. But I'm I'm curious about that choice to make it real, and that's like real in terms of like materiality. Sure. It's, 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 right. it seems there's a plausibility, and there's a there's yeah, a, and I think there's a yeah. demeanor about both of the projects. Well, so the mother-in-law house was originally intended to be built, and the client had a very cold feet about it. <laughs> uh, and actually, I kind of continued to work on it and developed it to its fullness 
uh, long after they sort of departed the picture, <laughs> uh, which I think is a, you know, that's just a part of being young and trying to find the right seam uh, for yourself. Yeah. Uh, but I think in the process, I kind of became fascinated with the, the smallness of scale uh, as something that makes it almost forgettable. Um, so this house was... It's a mother. It's a uh, an accessory dwelling unit, so it's a second home on a property that sort of sits in the backyard. Uh, and the intent was to create something that um, almost overwhelmed the existing house with its scale, but at the same time becomes forgettable. Uh, like you're walking through the alley, and you might not even notice that it's there at first until you sort of understand its strangeness um so the scale of it like you mentioned it's like bigger than a chimney but smaller than a tower (laughs) and somewhere in between and i think um that unlocked for me this sort of understanding of the material uh of the brick itself uh, at that scale becoming present Mm -hmm. Uh, it can't be a wallpaper in the sort of philip johnson manner uh, because you can almost count the amount of bricks that are in it. Um, so understanding and I actually modeled all of those bricks individually in order to kind of prove uh, how it could be built, um, mm. which we saw the similar example in a paper session yesterday from uh, South Dakota State. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the same method, so kind of using um, uh, string lines lofted down from the top to create these to locate where all the surfaces. Fall. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, that's sort of more technical. But I think uh, in the process uh, of working through that technicality, um, the problem of the corner became uh, very present. Um, just trying to resolve how these two surfaces meet at each right. corner. Uh, it became the study just in the tectonics of those four different sides, um, which I think when you see it, you kind of realize there are there are very different conditions that are starting to open up. Um, and I think the monumentality as an, a concept is reinforced by the sort of microcosm of the control of the material at just the brick scale. Hmm. Um, So when I started the monument project, uh, it was sort of midstream in thinking through the materiality of the mother-in-law house. And uh, in that case, I was looking at um, like a Versa block or like a landscape block material, sort of a CMU uh, concrete block. Uh, And and similarly, you're right. It probably could have been this sort of massive um, thing, but at the same time, to me, that's that's the lie of working through monumentality in the Colorado landscape. Is mm-hmm. no matter how large you make it, it's still not big mm-hmm. enough to mm-hmm. compete with the things around it. It's just indifferent. Yeah, yeah. and actually, um, controlling the scale down and sort of rationing it down to something that is relatable to an individual. Right. Uh, amplifies that monumentality more than sort of the grandness of it, uh, which is to me the lesson that I learned from looking at both the example, the sites that we walked through together um, because they're so large, they sort of swallow you up, yeah. but they don't really pay you back for that. Again, indifference. I mean, they're, they're fun, but they don't pay you back, I guess, in the same way that um, they might have if they sort of hugged you a little bit. Thank you.
were talking about some projects that you've done that aren't realized. And I, yeah. I think that's a great point you say about being a young architect. It's like, you know, 50% or maybe more of the projects you propose maybe never get built, but there's still projects. Sure. There's still research projects, investigations. They still will inform future work. Mm-hmm. There's still a kind of manifestation of your ideas. And um, of course, drawings are the, uh, and representations taking different forms, but drawings, photo collages, renderings, etc. Those are the things that we kind of hold on to as architects um, of projects that aren't built. And so you have a really, I think, really beautiful representation style. You're often mixing um, kind of landscape uh, that seems to be represented as a photograph, but then running it through, I think, several kind of filters. There are lots of lines or hatching. Mm-hmm. Um, your drawings are, for the most part, black and white. So mm-hmm. you really get a lot out of just the kind of tonal shifts of black and white and grayscale. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk about uh, your uh, kind of approach to representation and how sure, it's maybe yeah, influenced by any historical precedents or other architects. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, so. Uh, the work on the website isn't actually all the work that I've done. There are some things that have been built, but I think um, those I kind of save for the client to prove that I can build something. <laughs> so there's like a little house in Virginia and a condo in Arkansas and sort of actually very few things in Colorado. Um, but I think uh, it's about uh, being young. I think it's important to not um, move too fast into building uh, when you're not sure what you're trying to do with it yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, also it's important, I think, to take the time to draw um, and draw for the sake of sort of exploration as opposed to sort of um, technical uh, greatness or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Um, so for me, and I think you're speaking specifically about the two buildings we just sort of discussed, the monument and the mother-in-law house, um, this was an exploration in sort of, and actually the boule is not a bad parallel mm-hmm. in a way, um, looking at uh, how architects represented their work in the 19th century in specific using lithographs and things like that, where they sort of were playing with this drawing that's not a drawing and it's an image, but it's not an image and sort of rests or lives in this in-between zone that I think is untapped right now within the discipline and the sort of contemporary moment we're in uh, I think you see things are either an image or they're a drawing and there's very little gray area uh, except when it sort of starts to break the scale and become something real Um, so I think I've been attempting through the work and particularly the the drawings for the monument uh, to uh, kind of find this gray area that uh, is neither a drawing nor an image mm-hmm. nor a rendering, but sort of still clutches to the perimeter of all of those things at once. A grayscale area. I think this is really fascinating. I'm curious about your process because you've alluded to it indirectly a couple times, but I just want to parse this out and this might get a little technical or rote for um, the non-architects for a moment, but I just want to press through this. So these are all digitally modeled. Is that correct? They are, yeah. Okay. And when you say you build the bricks, they're literally individual bricks within the Rhino. Right. So and you're working in Rhino? I in assume? Rhino. They're individual block instances, actually, for each one. And are there, are there for these projects, um, they are speculative, but then they also have this like intense reality to them, mm-hmm. um, or firmness, and we, we should talk about that. Um, 
but you, you, if you have this uh, idea about the brick stacking, is there ever an opportunity or a time when you actually make a mock-up or take these things physical, or do they just stay in the computer all of the time? What I'm curious yeah. about is that it's a like the computer environment has been talked about as frictionless and fast, and I think you've discovered a way to work slowly, mm-hmm. um, intensely slowly. These projects are very slow. Everything about them is mm-hmm. slow. I mean that in the in the best way. In the best way. <laughs> I like but can slow. You, but can you can you talk about that? Because I think and I've, I've I've read another interview that you gave where you also talked about kind of like mining um, the kind of digital era for the advantage of like being able to find things. And so, can you just talk a little bit about your process in particular? How a project that seems inspired by a lot of models that are based on hand drawing and slowness mm-hmm. um and talk about how like the um yeah the digital environment has been something that you've been able to like co-opt and use and yeah how you find how you how you work that's a very nice insight i think <laughs> that you're giving me some credit for but i think uh that's actually at the heart of um the technique that i try to employ it's not really a technique i guess that's not the right word it's sort of the mentality of using the computer um in a sort of willfully almost disturbingly um, slow habituated (laughs) way Um, so modeling every single block and you know I actually didn't use uh, grasshopper or script or anything like that for either of those projects so they were um, arrayed using curves that I was drawing um, in a systematic sort of way Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think um, that's not it's, I'm not trying to punish myself but <laughs> so much as that gave me the opportunity to study different tectonic um, or architectonic kind of moments uh, mm-hmm. along the way and right. solve problems mm-hmm. and I think it comes from my time and practice in particular kind of resolving construction drawings in the computer uh, on projects and realizing that Uh, Maybe I have a bit of an obsessive compulsive streak (laughs) where I want to kind of understand how everything works. Yeah, yeah. Um, And to your point about mock-ups and things like that, uh, oddly, I haven't really done that. And it's more a matter of kind of time and resources than anything else. But uh, there's I have the ambition to do that soon, actually, for both of these. In a weird way, it seems like your process is almost like a kind of digital mock-up. Right, yeah. Because you really are placing each individual brick Mm -hmm. in the digital model um, and and not allowing a a script to do it faster. (laughs) Well, I mean, but I think it's important because I think that, you know, you mentioned you um, don't use Grasshopper. So for those not familiar with Grasshopper, it's um, a, a software that basically allows you to control the modeling software mm-hmm. and it will automatically place things mm-hmm. um, based on certain constraints you give it. That's kind of broad. It's a broad definition of <laughs> it, like but it's a visual, visual programming. Yeah, yeah, a visual Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> exactly. A better, I love a better definition. Yeah. yeah, but I think what's interesting <laughs> is that it, it Grasshopper tends to become top down, you mm-hmm. know, and I think if these projects were executed in Grasshopper, we would expect to see a lot more smoothness and actually mm-hmm. getting the idiosyncrasies and the um, particularities would actually be really difficult. These would be very difficult to actually execute in Grasshopper. So right. I think, you know, in the, in the manualness, um, you're able to get, uh, get a level of articulation and oddness mm-hmm. um they are not they're not normal they're, no they're not normal and, and again in the best way, in the best way <laughs> sure but 
one thing that really struck me is we were looking through your portfolio for the league prize, mm-hmm. and it was filled with precedent images, almost at a kind of one to one. But I would not expect that from your work mm-hmm. um, because when I it doesn't give us any it gives us inclinations of maybe like tendencies you have things sure. that you've looked at like right. Bray, but there's no overt referencing happening in terms of like quoting yeah uh, things so can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Preston why you it's thought a, it was important to yeah. disclose that yeah I mean I think it's um a, so there there are a couple of layers to that for me um for one I think um it's my belief that we're in the sort of moment where there really are no cohesive movements or things to sort of tie yourself into beyond kind of immediate peer groups and things like that. Um, and there's been a lot of writing about that that I think is really useful and instructive. In particular, uh, I think Sam Jacob has written a lot in terms of understanding that uh, the kind of Charles Jenks diagram is 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 uh, obsolete. Uh, I think even. Maybe Alejandro Zaire Apollo did something along the same lines as well recently, where you're starting to understand architecture not as something that has a cohesive movement that you can tie into, but is rather very individuated and sort of personal. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of there's problem with that, uh, or it's problematic for us when we try to kind of set out because um, I think we all might look back on. Um, the 60s or the 50s with some nostalgia and think like, wow, wouldn't it have been great to like slide under I.M. Pei or Gropius's uh, like wing and sort of explore <laughs> and be a part of a movement or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but I actually find that it's extremely liberating to be in this place where we don't have these hero figures that you can really or want would want to align yourself to. Uh, I mean, I don't, I can't think of anyone <laughs> who I would be like, oh man. Yeah. I can't wait to be the yeah. Patrick Schumacher clone or something like that. Um, so I think, you know, that that self-critique of our current moment or, or where we are in contemporary uh, architecture culture is uh, requiring us to find our own kind of family tree. Right. Uh, so the Arc League Prize uh, portfolio and presentation and all of that was for me an, uh, an exploration in how to build that family tree. Uh, in a way that that um, embraces the difference of myself from other kind of practices or, or people who are working right now, uh, and I think the the temptation to sort of directly reference things. I think I, uh, I have this glitch that doesn't allow me to do that for some reason. Like I think once I start to recognize something really clearly, uh, I try to get away from it. Um, I think I don't know why. I think. I remember uh, being at the GSD and uh, sitting on a review and Sylvia Laban was sort of uh, walking through the room and saying, that's Tom Main and that's Sana and that's this person and that person. And I think I, I, I still to this day have this kind of in my mind aversion to being too related to anyone. Um, uh, but finding these sort of references uh, is extremely important in terms of sort of creating the the zoo, the zoo of creatures that you kind of have in the back of your head. Um, so for me, it's like 19th century uh, lithography, mm-hmm. early photography, um, as especially as a preservation project uh, in history and things like that. Um, 20th century architecture, in particular late modernism, I think is a very relevant uh, kind of thing to be studying 
in terms of where we are today to kind of look at Hayduck or look at Aldo Rossi and see that they're kind of straining against the limits of the language that was been had been given to them I think we are now straining against our own limits in a way uh, which is why we see this sort of proliferation of a good kind of weirdness um, sort of sort of finding the kind of hidden seam uh, that 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 populates something familiar mm-hmm. uh, while still being kind of different in a way. Kevin Hirth, thank you so much for joining us on our walk around downtown Denver. The city is amazing and we hope to visit again soon. For images of the buildings we discussed, along with some examples of Kevin's work, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Schulman.